0: Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Drew. And I'm Derek. We're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic
1: worlds and inspiring lore by going on a Wonder Tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at Wondertourpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy this deep dive on Ocean's Eleven.
0: Today's topic... and uh, narrative, and it's Ocean's Eleven. And uh, Drew, why don't you kick us off with that? I'm excited.
1: uh, Thanks for joining us on Wonder Tour today. We are talking about one of my favorite movies growing up here. I know that Derek and I are both big into the heist movies, and we hope you all are too. So today we're going to talk about narrative and leadership in Ocean's Eleven. So I just want to touch on a couple things before we get started here. Uh, we definitely want to use the opportunity to talk about good and bad traits of leaders, as we have in our previous episodes, and we'll continue to. So I just want to make sure that, of course, before we get into any of this, it's understood that, like, yes, in this movie, the heroes and the villains are kind of mixed up. And <laughs> they, they even call themselves, quote-unquote, villains in the movie. Um, I think it's Basher, maybe, who who calls the Ocean's team villains. Um, so we're not, obviously, saying—we we don't want to— try to make them out to be these grand heroes. Um, But what we do want to do, because this is kind of a bit of a Robin Hood tale, right? It's kind of like robbing from the rich. Um, So what we do want to do is look at the positives um, of how they work together to pull off and a really hard to pull off task, which is what a lot of us are tasked to do often. And we also want to look at some of the negatives and some of the the bad ways that they do things as well, and maybe how we can learn from those. So, without further ado, I'm going to hop into just a flyover of how the movie goes. So, this one's going to be pretty easy (laughs) since it's just a heist movie, and I'm not going to go into the details of how the heist takes place. That's for you to go back and watch. Um, We start out with Danny Ocean, George Clooney's character, getting out of jail. Um, I'm not going to go through too much of what happens there. We get the idea that he's been in jail for a previous crime that he's committed, stealing something. Clearly, you, they don't really talk a lot about how it happened, but these, a lot of these guys in this movie have worked together before on different jobs. It's just kind of let on. So he ends up through, you know, we have all these couple different scenes, and he ends up meeting up with Rusty, Brad Pitt's character, who clearly he's run jobs with before in the past. And they're kind of getting back together now that he's out of jail Um, He he goes and he meets up with Frank as well, who's going by a different name, working at one of the casinos, kind of pulling an inside job there. And that's where everything gets kicked off and they come up with this idea or really Clooney or Danny Ocean comes up with the idea that he wants to rob these three casinos that are all owned by Andy Garcia's character, Terry Benedict. So that kicks us off into, okay, well, they're going to need a stable crew to pull this off. And they're going to need some people they've worked with before and maybe some people that they haven't. Now, this is, you know, from a business perspective or from an organizational perspective, whatever it is, right? You want to surround yourself with good leaders, with people who have good skill sets that complement you, good personality traits, things like that. So that's going to be really interesting for us to dive into. So we'll come back to that, how they build a team. So inevitably they build this team of 11 guys, Ocean's 11, hence the movie's name. Um, they go ahead and they have all of these, you know, they have these planning montages and stuff of how they're going to pull off the heist. They run across all these different issues that happen as uh, kind of along the way. I think one of the interesting things we'll talk about there is just like, everybody's just such a pro at their own task. and But they have different roles that they're going to play here. Like Virgil and his brother, the Mormon brothers, um, you know Casey Affleck and such. They they're funny and they play this comic relief role, but they're also really good those at those. The they guys
0: do. that fight all the time,
1: yeah, good the at that are always kind of they arguing. They're so
0: with good them. at distracting.
1: Oh man, yeah, it was great. Exactly, they're awesome actors, and you need that in kind of a con scheme like they're running there. So, and, and you need different kind of actors in different leadership tasks that you're trying to run. but you always need actors. You need people who can play parts in the narrative really well. So anyway, they, they go and they have this grand scheme that they're going to pull off. Um, that and, and the way that it rolls out is really that Danny and Rusty kind of know what's going on. And they're slowly letting on the rest of the team into what's happening, but only from a need-to-know basis. But they're not doing it to be withholding. They're doing it because that's actually how the plan has to unfold because everybody has to believe that their part of the plan is, you know, this critical part that that is going to be the linchpin of the plan. Otherwise, it won't succeed. And they give everybody kind of the flexibility to pull their plan off in the way that they see fit. We see this as an example with with Don Cheadle's character, Basher, um, where, you know, they're going to, like, blow the electric grid and he kind of, like, switches it up and they end up having to use this pinch device that they steal from this university. Um, everybody gets to play a role and everybody gets to kind of define how their role is going to operate um, within the team and within the job that they're going to run. In the end, of course, there's this kind of confrontation because most of these guys have some kind of beef with Terry Benedict, the guy who owns all those casinos and so they're kind of trying to take him down. We find out that Danny, the part of his beef with Terry, it's not just about the money. It's also about the fact that his you know, wife, ex-wife, whatever you want to call her, I don't think they're like officially divorced, um, is currently with Terry Benedict. Uh, she left him when he went to jail for three years, four years. They, they kind of leave those ambiguous <laughs> things of like how long he was in jail and stuff, because it's really a story that they're telling you. And that's what matters, not these hard, specific, physical things. But, um, yeah, so there's this kind of revenge narrative towards towards Terry and the team kind of all comes together to pull this job off in the end. Um, they have the duplicate safe, which is obviously if you're kind of remembering how Ocean's Eleven goes and you haven't seen it in a long time, right? What happens is they pull it off using a duplicate safe. Um, so they use this this fake video essentially of them robbing this duplicate safe to convince Terry to, uh, that they're actually, that they've just robbed the the real safe when the real job, it was a complete diversion, right? All this effort that they just put in was a complete diversion to the actual robbery of the safe. And Terry falls right for it. And kind of the movie ends with while, while George Clooney, um, he ends up, Tess comes back to him. I don't think we're going to go into that. That's just kind of like a weird setting up of the second movie more than anything. If you want to talk about why Tess would even come back to him after that, that might be a different story for like a relationships podcast or something. But she does.
0: She well, does. it's cool. It's yeah. kind of a cool second rail. We will get around to, you know, kind of how that factors in. It's kind of interesting. But, yeah, we'll uh, we'll come back to it maybe at the very, very end.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, we'll definitely touch on it. But, I mean, I think the point of it is like, hey, you see all the guys are free at the end. They're all kind of just like happy hanging out on the strip, Look, you know, at night looking over it. They're looking over like a railing and that they just like can't believe what they've just accomplished. And Danny, he goes to jail for three to six months for assumedly violating his parole. Um, and so with that, eventually he comes back out. And that's when you know, you can tell, OK, there's going to be a sequel because <laughs> they're, they're getting back together. Right.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It's a good uh, it's a good story. I really I really did enjoy just uh You know, how kind of things were all put together you know, all the different personalities and how sometimes they clash. I can remember Linus in the van (laughs) and (laughs) he's just like, I can't stand this. I'm going to go put myself in danger uh, just because that seems better right now than listening to these two brothers complain at each other. And I thought that was hilarious. Um, I really enjoyed the other (laughs) part of that whole scene there. I really enjoyed just this slow walk. Of him off the rooftop onto the van, it was just so funny to me because he just did not take the security guards uh, seriously, and and it really epitomizes the entire movie, which is just like this almost uh, the caricatures that the security posed to them. We're like juggernauts. We're gonna run over you one way or the other. We'll we'll think of a new thing that you haven't thought of and outthink you. And uh, so anyway, that was a neat neat theme throughout. So yeah. All right, let's jump into it Drew. What's your yeah. what's your big moment?
1: Yeah, let's talk about the moment. And of course, this is a heist movie, so like the obvious moment would be like one of the, you know, when they pull something over on somebody, but this is a leadership, you know, driven podcast. So I want to talk about building the team. So the moment for me is really that initial meeting with Reuben. It occurs maybe 10 to 15 minutes into the movie, maybe even less than that honestly, where they have you have um Dusty and Danny and they have this idea for this job and but they're like oh if we're gonna pull this off like we need Ruben and Ruben is Elliot Gold's character um, he's kind of like this eccentric ex-casino owner who knows has all this knowledge yet clearly has some kind of a checkered past so they can get him involved in it and they go and they 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 pitch him on it but they pitch him on it in such a smart way and so this is something that that you can really look at I think And learn from in terms of how do you get your initiatives through right how do you get people to to buy into the story that you're selling and they just do such a smart job of it where they just kind of like sell him on this crazy plan that you know like he's just he's kind of this eccentric guy so he's like by default, he probably kind of wants to do something like that, or he's definitely predisposed to like, well, it's, it's goading, right. They want to goad him into it, right. That's the, the key mechanism,
0: you know, that they, they, they realized very early on that he's got a bone to pick with somebody and you know, you gotta be careful about doing this, uh, you know, in, in business and leadership. Um, but if there's a way to positively use that energy, um, someone, you know, wants to, I don't know, teach somebody a lesson or something like that. You can't necessarily jump in and endorse that per se, but if you can kind of harness that power.
1: Uh, it's the power they, the chip on the shoulder, right? That's like the easier yeah. way to, more general way to look at it is like when somebody's got a chip on their shoulder, you yep. don't necessarily, you know, you don't want to push and pressure that chip necessarily, but you want to ha- if you're really a good leader, you want to help them to overcome that chip on their shoulder as long as it's a healthy thing for them to do. And yeah, that's what that looks like sometimes is like, all right, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to put this offer out there, but they don't like directly say like, we're trying to get back at Terry Benedict. They just, yeah. they just, he's like, wait a second. At the end, Ruben's like, that's Terry Benedict. You know, he owns those casinos, and <laughs> interested, right? And they're willing to walk away. They're willing to leave. And I think that's really important too. So well, that's all part of the goading.
0: That's, You know, that's all part of the goading, too, right? It's like, well, you know, I'm done with you. And then, you know, then you turn that back around on that person, you're like, you know, they they start questioning what they said, you know, and that's what happened to him. He was like, wait a minute, did I, you know, express myself too much or something? And then he starts to kind of make concessions back towards what they wanted, which I think
1: was brilliant, you know, just brilliant. So, Okay, So we got to talk about the quote there at the end then because um, we're talking about the crew and building the crew. We're not going to have time to talk about every single person that they build into the crew. But um, as as they're kind of ending that conversation, Ruben says, like, you're going to need a crew that's as nuts as you are. And I think that that has been really, really emblematic of my life as a leader, whether you lead, you know, teams, people, you know, just people and kind of scattered initiatives, whatever it is. It It, it kind of goes without saying that you're going to need a crew as nuts as you are, not in terms of, you know, like, upside down thinking always, but sometimes it is, it actually does look like that. You know, you're gonna If you want transformation and that's your purpose, that's what you're trying to do within a process, within an organization, technologically, right? You're going to have to have some kind of upside down thinking. And that means you're going to have to find a couple people that might've been written off as nuts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and, and what is nuts? Like, I think that's the word I key in on, uh, specifically. And, um, because that's the contrast you're here, but, you know, uh, like you said, nuts is all relative um, because you could be reading the leading edge journals and the re- leading edge business uh, publications, et cetera, like Harvard Business Review and, you know, uh, some of the MIT Sloan stuff, you know, and but you could take that back to where you're at. And people would say, that sounds nuts to me. I, I don't see that version of the world. Um and it may not even be, you know, those kind of things. It could just be something that is just enough outside of what is normal, and they they don't understand it to the depth that you do, maybe, you know. And so you got to keep that in mind. You got to keep it in mind that, um, you know, people may see generalizations of you. They may see character, uh, you know, caricatures of you, right? They may not understand the depth of what you're into. And so that's why they say nuts. Don't feel bad if somebody actually take it as a compliment, I think, uh, as long as you can find some different sources out there, you're like, these are pretty credible sources. You know, you can start to build on that. You have, but as you said, Drew, you got to start to, uh, bring in people into the fold who understand that it's not nuts. Actually it's quite sound. Right. And they understand that because they have the depth and the breadth to understand that. Right. Um, and that's the key, I think, to kind of dispelling the nutsness. But hey, Ruben went with it. Even though he said it was nuts, it, it, the, there was a part of him that obviously wanted to crush Terry Benedict. So <laughs> he went with it because he he thought about that future and he thought how fun that would be. Just like his building, you know, he wanted Terry to go down just like his building, right? He wanted to see
1: Terry crushed. So anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, and before we get into the team, a little bit of the rest of the team, I do want to just touch on that revenge narrative. And I would throw you back to the episode that we did on Obi-Wan Kenobi, where we talked about, you know, how does Obi-Wan Kenobi deal with Anakin? So I don't, without going too deep into it, it's that moment in episode four, right, where he 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 doesn't get revenge He You know, he's. He doesn't get revenge on Anakin. Anakin or Darth Vader thinks he's getting revenge on Obi-Wan. And really in that moment, Obi-Wan sets the narrative straight. And I I do think I I just want to mention that because revenge, we've all heard all these different these, you know, these different idioms for revenge and stuff like that. and, And especially within the place of business, there's no place for revenge. Um, revenge is always going to come back and and haunt you only in the movies. Does it actually work out? So all of everything that we say, take with the understanding that we are, would never propagate revenge as a good way to get something done. Um, but the chip on the shoulder motivation is very similar to revenge and and can actually come from a positive place.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just, you know, the chip on the shoulder is all about awareness, right? And if you can just wake somebody up to the fact that it's there. I think that's most of what you have to accomplish in business Um, and and to solidly wake up to that, you know, have that person actually say thank you, you know, have them thank you for that would be a great win in itself. Because then you have evidence of change in that particular person. So I think that's that's a good point to bring back up there, Drew, the chip on the shoulder there.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the team as we, you know, for, speaking of chip on the shoulder, it seems like everybody on this team has some type of a chip on their shoulder. So when you're building this team that's quote-unquote nuts, what are you looking for? Um, how do you know that you're filling the right roles? You know, when they have 10 guys on the squad and they're talking about like, do we need an 11th? And that's when they go for a Linus, right? Maybe that's, let's just focus in on that. How do you know when you're like one taco short of a combination plate? And you're like, all right, we got to get the we got to get that next personality, that next skill set, that next motivation that's going to drive us to be able to like complete the puzzle.
0: Well, and I, I want to talk to you this, but because this is a kind of a cool little thing that I noticed uh, when I was watching it. But it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Rusty talks about different personas. Did you see that part? That was cool. And they never talked about the different personas, the the types of personalities, the the overall makeup of the people that they're looking for. Um, He said something about an Ella Fitzgerald there at the end. I thought that was hilarious. I couldn't catch them all. Um, I can't even begin to decode them. But you do, if you're going to build a team, you need to be thinking in terms of personas that you need. Um, Personally, I kind of go to the Enneagram uh, you know, which is a kind of this ancient, you know, kind of personality typing system. There's nine different types. Uh, you can look it up, but anyway, um, that one really helps me kind of feel out, you know, what personality types do I need, uh, you know, to build a team with. So that's one, the other one though, drew, right. you talked about this for a second, but the professional aspect, right. Uh, the skill level. So let's just think about in terms of, you know, let's say Linus, uh, versus you know, Rusty's skill level, right? Uh, why don't you contrast that for a second with me? because I think that's kind of an interesting one for people to kind of take away here is if you're gonna do something that's nuts, you can't have a team full of greenhorns, even if you've got yeah. a diverse personality cast, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's what you see across these oceans movies is they know that like sometimes you need that firecracker. and that firecracker is a little bit risky. That's Linus, right? That's Matt Damon's character who comes in and he's he's so eager and he's so passionate that you're worried that at any moment he could give it all away. But it's also that eagerness and that passion that you really want to stoke in him because you're like, wow, he could be, you know, by Ocean's, you know, let's say there was an Ocean's 14, you know, he could be leading this whole thing up by Ocean's 14. Um, and 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 you could really see his progression if you give him that opportunity. And so I think that, yeah, you see the, the, the overall cast they're they're total experts all the way across the board, you know, especially in terms of their their mechanical expertise, their ability to build things, launch things. They're experts at formulating a plan. They understand how they need to act and how they need to who they need to portray, how they need to comment, how they need to go. And you can't always build a team with just those characters though. And so that's where I'm interested in how do you spruce in what you you know you call them a greenhorn necessarily, but you know they might not be a, a total greenhorn, but you know, somebody who's a noob or needs more experience? How do you spruce them in with those experienced people and then level them up? And I think that's our mentor moment here is the mentor experience between you really have Rusty and Danny that are kind of mentoring Linus and they do it in a little bit of different ways. And I think that, you know, you can see the frustration in Linus as they're doing it. But then by the end, you can see why they did it.
0: Yeah, well... (laughs) I'm sorry, I got to mention this, though, because this is really funny. But I do enjoy the point where Ruben just tells him to get get the crap in the house. Basically, I, I thought that was so funny. And you think about Ruben, where he's at. He's like, I'm done with mentoring. I'm not doing mentoring now. Now all I'm doing is mocking. Like, that's my thing. My thing is mocking. And uh, <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, you know, the mentorship to Linus, you know, there were just moments where he just has the blank face on. Um, I enjoyed the Nevada Gaming Commission uh, prep, that was like just golden uh, Mm -hmm. to me. And it was golden because what, so one of the patterns that I thought Rusty used was really about uh, letting his mentee know what the extremes are. So I think that was really important, right? If you look up, uh, what was it? He doesn't, if you look down, you're telling a lie. If you look up, you don't know what the truth is uh you know it was just kind of like really maintain a flat affect and just kind of look off in the distance right and that's i mean i watched for that because i was just like how's he how does he really play this out as an actor right um you know and and he played it extremely well and um but i, I can't remember the other things that rusty would you know i mean i, I think those two it's ones other, that really stuck out to me yeah can you name uh, some other ones
1: that um, I mean, yeah, his points from, you just said his points from left to right, basically, where he's just like, yeah. you know, if, you, if you're too much of this, then that if you're too much of that then this, he, he leaves right. him all this space in between. He essentially uh-huh. just takes this huge canvas of what could be with the role that he's going to play as this Nevada gaming convention guy. And he just like paints him into a much smaller circle. And he's just like, okay, you have all of the creative liberty within this circle, but he's like, you need to try to aim for this circle. And I know you're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to learn from trying to aim at that circle. And I think that you're right. That's a really good way to to mentor somebody is to try to kind of cue them into like, here's the creative liberty you have. I'm going to try to make sure you succeed. Um, but I also want to give you creative liberty.
0: Yeah. To stay away from the extremes, because when you stay with when you are in the extremes, you're going to you're going to break the the role that I put you in, whatever that may be. You may have somebody on your team. You want them to play a certain role, um, you know, and and. You know, I, I know in my own personal experiences, like I give people a lot of latitude, but I can identify with how Rusty addresses, Hey, these extremes shall not be crossed. And it's not because I'm worried about, I don't know, something that's going to happen to you, but it's just like the overall thing, you know, it's not going to help you in the long run. right? Right. Um, Obviously with Linus, it was gonna hurt him in the short term, right? I mean and it was gonna hurt the whole team in the short term. Everything about this movie is operational. And we'll get to that here after we get done talking about the team. But um yeah, so let's talk about Danny and Linus and and that
1: interesting. Play there. I love that. Um, that Danny kind of plays more of a leadership role, like I like to play, which is just kind of leaving the breadcrumbs, right? He understands this narrative, and I'm I'm definitely not the best at this. There are times when I'm like too upfront with the narrative that's going on, but he basically sees this narrative happening underneath. He sees all the undercurrents, and he's playing that. He's you can tell he's done this so many times that he's just ready to play it and he knows when to show his hand. You know, the whole thing is kind of like shown right at the beginning. You get this microcosm of who these guys are because you see him playing poker and they're just grilling. They're just grilling these amateurs at poker, basically. And you can just tell and you can actually see because you see Brad Pitt and George Clooney go up against each other. And you see Brad Pitt be wrong when he tries to when he tries to call uh, on George Clooney's bluff. And George Clooney has the the the. Four nines and the ace high. And that's kind of how they're going to play is like George keeps or Danny keeps everything so close to the chest. And he's just he sees the narrative and he knows that his only role is to make sure that each actor makes it to their place that they need to be in the narrative, basically. So he's just like Linus needs to take another step in his development. How is it, How are we, is he going to take that step? You know, he might even he might even understand that, like, Linus might leave the van, but he's just like, I'm just going to tell him not to leave the van, maybe so he does leave the van because he needs to learn that I'm just right a lot of the time and he just needs to trust me on these things. And how is he going to learn until he makes a mistake? Right. And so he that moment in the with the van is so funny where they're like driving away and they're like, wait a second, where's Linus? and they have to go back. Him. that's exactly how he teaches him. He just leaves a breadcrumb trail for him to follow, right? It's different than the way that Rusty does it. And, and you did such a good job of explaining that. Rusty, like, frames it. Danny just kind of, like, leads you by, with, like, little bits and pieces of the story. And every one you pick up, you contextualize for yourself in your own narrative.
0: Yeah, and he uh, he owned the fact that Linus could have made a mistake, too, because he went back and got him. If he really mm-hmm. wanted to just, you know— See you later, Linus. Good luck. You know, I mean, and that would have been a leader, I think, that blames people, right? And he could have blamed Linus. Now, I'm not saying he didn't get frustrated at Linus. Linus deserves some frustration, yada, 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 whatever. But he didn't blame him in the fact that, well, good luck. You're now cut off. Right. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. He went back and got him. He risked everybody in that van to go back and get Linus. Obviously, he understood the value of his investment in Linus and what Linus was going to do ultimately in the end. And man, did he ever come through? Right. So it was a it was a good moment to see that, you know, even though Danny is very terse even though Danny, and, and, and I want to say something about that too, for a second. He, he, the reason he's so terse, right? I mean, this is something that we, this is our opinion. We, we don't, we're not told this, but, um, I think his terseness is, has got to do a lot with the fact that he has prior relationship, uh, with all these people. Right. And we, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but I really want to pull that out a little more because I think this is really important. If you have a reputation you, you can just give somebody a particular job and tell them what the goal is, set the vision, and if they know what's in it for them, then they are going to – If like I said, if they have this deep uh, ability, a professional ability, right, um, that they can t- track to the goal, right? And that's what a lot of the guys on the team did. Now, the ones that were less experienced, he gave them smaller jobs. Hey, the two brothers, why don't you go – cause a ruckus, go get the balloons and let them go in the lobby, you know? Um, you know, and he was able to box in those roles very specifically. So, you know, I think you can kind of see though, like why some more people he was maybe more explicit with other people, he were more implicit with because when someone's professional too, you know what, they have a certain, uh, want to say competency that you don't want to violate. You don't want to be like, you don't you know what you're doing? That's a micromanager, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Somebody who knows what they're doing Absolutely. and you're like, don't you know what you're doing? <laughs> yes, they know what they're doing. Give them the goal. They got it, you know, so.
1: Yeah, you really nailed that, right? He and you were, I think, the one who taught me about the idea of capital, right? You have political capital, personal capital, and you you build it up and you spend it. It's like energy almost that you need to you need to think about it. Most people just don't actually think about it. They kind of just like, Use their emotions to build it and use their emotions to spend it. But really, your benefit when you use your mind and that capital is worth convincing people of things that, you know, usually for me in my career, it's been worth convincing people of things without a 50 slide deck that explains exactly why. It's basically just saying, like, look, you trust me. I'm going to expend some of that capital right now to ask you to just bat me on this thing right now. And, you know, and then you actually, the thing is, you're always gambling with that because you get back more capital than you just spent, if you were right. And then you have to be obviously willing to lose it as well, because it is a gamble when you do something like that, right? You need to then go forward and succeed. And so you can't gamble all the time, or at least that's not how I've played the game, is is not to gamble all the time. I just very strategically pick when to. And you also don't just want to keep building up political capital for years and years and years, because I've seen so many people who do that and they just end up in roles that aren't right for them because they just keep building capital, but never actually expending any of it. Um, and, and, and they end up just doing other people's projects and other people's strategies and never influencing that themselves. So it's really important just to think about how much capital you have. How could you lose capital, right? You lose capital when you switch roles or jobs, generally. Um But you gain capital by doing things that kind of go across roles and jobs by you gain capital by getting degrees, you gain capital by completing really ambitious projects and things like that. Those are things that will make people trust you kind of no matter what, no matter where you are, if you can just show that that imperative evidence like this, look, we did this, boom.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think that's why you have to have your pipeline going all the time, because Uh, capital uh, decays over time, too. So if you don't spend it, you lose it. Um, And I think that makes sense, right? If you're not relevant in the organization around you constantly. Now, it doesn't always have to be what you think it is. It doesn't always have to be that you're on the soapbox uh, always talking. But people need to know, you know, if you're a leader, they need to know that you are into X, Y, and Z all the time. That is staying on message. That is having a strategy. And, you know, think about, uh, you know, this month time period that Danny was, you know, running this heist, right? He was on message the whole time. Somebody tried to knock him off message when they started bringing up tests, which is a very inconvenient truth for him. Uh, However, he kind of explained it away. I loved how he explained it away because he was like, well, maybe, you (laughs) you know, maybe it's about tests, maybe it's not um i love that i love the way he did that um yes he was showing a little bit of vulnerability and with 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 danny ocean you're gonna get like a slit of vulnerability you can't he's not gonna give you a full window or a door into what he's thinking he's gonna give you a slit to look through and then you're gonna have to be like oh if i squint this way it kind of looks like that and if i squint so as you said drew he plays very close to the chest and that that's something that you know i me personally Sometimes I say so much uh about my plan. And I think you should as a leader. I think you should definitely be above board about almost everything that you're thinking, you know, so that people can trust you and that you're authentic. Um however, I think sometimes there are if, if you're reaching very far, maybe, and in this case with Tess, I think he was reaching very far, right? You gotta keep that to yourself a little bit. That's just something like you wish, you hope. Um, you know, in that case, it was kind of out of his control, but The beauty of it is that he was able to use that in a strategic weave, right, in this operation, and he was able to weave that in as a red herring that distracted Terry ultimately in the end. And that was beautiful. It distracted the authorities. It distracted Terry. It uh, tricked everybody into thinking that he wasn't involved. Like it gave him a complete, like, out, right? Um, That was so
1: slick, you know? Derek, talk to me about this concept of a strategic weave that you just mentioned here. I think this is really critical to take away.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, well, in this case, this is an operation, right? So, we're talking about a month timeframe. Uh, a lot of times we think operations are literally things that we have written down, we have procedures for. Um, maybe not necessarily. Maybe you're trying to negotiate a big deal by the end of the month, and you've got, you know, 10 different people working on that deal, different aspects, and you've got to look. How can you make each person's efforts uh, compound and uh, add to the other? Right? You want to you want to be able to have everybody kind of maybe if you if you look at it in terms of like ten flywheels, you know, I don't know if that's kind of complicated. To look, think about flywheels, but I know that's like a really buzzy term right now. Um, but how does how does each person's work kind of fit into the other person's work? How do you get those things to line up, not in in a Uh, end-to-end fashion but mostly parallel where they're all producing something right and then there is a stage where you've got you go a step up right and you say you combine six people's work into this one thing these other three people are waiting for it but then those other six people go off and they do the thing you know that's subsequent so you've got to really look at how are you taking the tasks and kind of making them make sense and minimizing the amount of time this isn't micromanagement this is letting people have some autonomy, letting them know what the vision is for the end of the month, et cetera, and how they fit into it. And I think if you go back and use the model from this movie, you can see that you have some kind of a persona, right? You, the person filled that persona, and then you put them into a role, and you give them very specific responsibilities. Linus, you need to impersonate this guy, and these are the tasks that have to happen. You have to drop the cell phone into the pocket. Then you have to kind of go and do these other things you know, very clear on what has to happen. And I want to say that there's a cram at the end. So in this movie, there's a cram at the end. So I think that's interesting. I think that's very often what happens with a lot of teams. They'll make a big promise. And then you've got the one week or the two day cram at the end. Um, Is it human nature, Drew? I don't know, but it tends to happen. I've had it happen with a lot of different people that I've worked with where they know what needs to be done. Three fourths of the month, nothing happens until the pressure comes on and their urgency is there and then they become the team they need to be. Yeah. Do you get know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, sometimes it's the pressure that forces that and sometimes it's the clarity. When you're operating agile, sometimes it's that you spend all this time kind of discovering and uncovering things about your about what you're doing. And then the last month or the last week or whatever is when everything is finally lined up perfectly. I can see the architecture for what it is. I can see the tasks for what they are. And we can just hit a boom, 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 boom. And that's why teams usually, like you said, do, you know, for for many reasons, they accomplish things. uh, They accomplish the most work at the end of the project in order to be able to deliver it there. I do want to touch on um, one piece of the web there. And I think this movie hits on it really well, is that the beginning of that strategic weave is the people. So don't get caught up thinking the beginning of your strategic weave has anything to do with technology. It has anything to do with processes. right? That's, uh, In my experience, you're just getting caught up in something that's going to change. What you need to focus on in your your weave is getting the right people networked together in the right way and then casting the vision and, and having them understand the strategy and be able to contribute to the strategy in ways that are meaningful to them. When you do that, That's how you pull off a strategic weave. That's how you get all these groups from different places throughout the company to push towards one initiative all at the same time and really get that rock over the hill for you. Um, Getting back to, though, one thing you said earlier, this is one of my morals. And I know we've kind of been hitting on the morals for a while here, but I think one of the morals is ownership. I'm not going to talk too much about this, but I think there's a really great book, Extreme Ownership, by Leif Babin and Jocka Willink that's just fantastic. It really changed my uh, understanding of what you're responsible for as a leader. And these these are, you know, former SEALs and they're, who you know, former SEAL leaders. And they explain basically that, like, you know, you're responsible for everything, for every decision that's made, for every action that's taken. If you don't see yourself now, I don't want to get into a, a mode where, you know, you become, you know, overly burdened with this. That's not the point. But the point is that you take responsibility. And that's what you said. Danny takes responsibility for his team. Whatever happens, I brought you here. You were part of my strategic weave. I'm going to rein you back in. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help your development. And I think that is a mark of a really good leader. And that's why these guys want to come back, you know, other than the fact that they can make money at the box office, right? That's why these guys want to come back to do more missions in this store, in this fictional world. Yeah, no, that's, that's,
0: that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you... Uh...
1: You're definitely you're definitely
0: hitting on the right things there. I mean, it's you want to get people to to to, you use that personal capital, right? You get them to buy in. You have that vision. And, uh, man, I don't know. Like, you know, he he just owns like the outcome the entire time. Right. And he and I think that they own it, too. Now, when you're talking about a heist. This is something that's kind of funny, but it's you know you kind of put yourself into a trap when you're doing a heist because you've already committed a number of crimes and now you're like in a hole and now you got to dig yourself back out. Now I do want to draw a parallel to that in when you're spending your personal and business capital, right? So when you spend down, right, um, you have to realize that if you don't, uh, like the, I guess the, I, I try to tell myself this: it, the worst thing that can happen is. I spent my reputation. But, you know, because if your thing doesn't go through, like, let's say your initiative doesn't happen, like, let's say your initiative doesn't uh, fully come true, right? Um, just remember that in this particular case, because it's not a criminal thing, right? Because you're not doing a heist. Uh, remember that, you know, your previous accomplishments, you still have those, right? And that's different from, the heist situation right the heist situation is kind of like you know if you mess up in a heist like a lot of people can go away for a long time you don't get another chance to do it for a long time because these people like get sent to prison or whatever so but that's not what happens in real life if you're an entrepreneur if you're an entrepreneur um you know you have to think about how yeah i mean you know that startup may not go well or that particular venture or that initiative may not go well that's that's gonna be okay. Look back on your accomplishments. And I think once you get a number of accomplishments done, right, completed, and you can look back on that, you really feel, you get to the place where you feel uh, ever more, I don't wanna say bulletproof, but I, I think you, you start to get that sense, right? That you're like, I'm not worried about what happens this time. Yes, I spent my political and personal capital here, um, but I trust myself enough and this is where Danny was at, man. Like he had evolved enough. And even with all the bad things that can happen in a heist, he had evolved enough personally and, and developed himself enough that he was like, it's going to be all right, no matter what happens. And uh, again, you know, his placidity, right? Right? He's just so placid, that guy, like the whole movie, right? Um, that's the only mindset that I can extract from that,
1: you know? Yeah, that's, and that's such a great mindset. And that's like, it's it's aspirational to want to take on that type of a mindset. And that's something that we all want to strive to do, right? You don't want to get stuck in something that's kind of sunk, um, a ship that's sinking or anything like that. And you definitely, you know, if you find out, take any moral issues out of the story, you know, if you end up doing something that is non-compliant or immoral or something like that, and you didn't realize it at first, but I think that is a great mentality to take into your things is basically no, like you once you bet your political capital on this until you can prove to yourself a good reason to back back out and to to try to pivot go for it. And don't, you know, you got to try to quell that anxiety within you. That's telling you like, Oh no, what if I fail because you've just already put yourself on the line? Like you've already, the, the biggest risk is already taken, right? Just think about it. Like, you know, we all had that experience of having to ask somebody out at some point, right? Or maybe we're still, we're single and we're still having that experience of, of, you know, Derek and I are married, but of asking somebody out and that's exactly it, right? That moment by which you pop that question of just like, Oh, do you want to go to dinner? Do you want to go get a drink or something like that? That is the, the the paramount. That's like the that's the climax of that narrative. Right. After that, everything's downhill. It's, it's easy for you. You've already expended the capital, that relationship capital to be able to do that. So if you can think about that in the same way with your projects, right, you got to just quell the anxiety and just be like, no, we're going to do this and we're just going to keep going until we find a good reason to until we finish it or until we find a good reason to pivot. And luckily, like you said, we're not running a heist, so it's not it's not win or go to jail.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and I I think that, you know, that's important, too, is uh, to mention that, you know, let's say you are in an oversold situation where you've just you've just unloaded, you know, tons and tons of your capital. Look for ways to provide value to the people that you serve in your organization. Go ahead and look for ways to um, sell off part of your idea and say, yes, I can compartmentalize part of that. I can take part of that and go ahead and republish that out, right? I can go ahead and say, hey, this is an independent idea. This happened because of the grand vision idea that I sold all my capital for right to get to and I've bet really big on. But on the way, don't forget that you can provide value. I think so many times there's so many times where people uh, they get frozen with anxiety Uh, Because they're so concerned about how the grand vision is going to work out. And really, if you go back, I'm sure to plenty of entrepreneurial and inventor stories. There are plenty of prototypes, plenty of steps along the way where they may have not thought it was very valuable. But you can certainly provide value to others and continue to build out relationships. And what's that going to do? Yes, in a way, you're doubling down. On your potential debt and your potential huge idea that may flop you can think of it like that that's fine the other part of it that you need to remember though is that when you are building additional relationships you're actually diffusing then and you're going into new growth sources for your personal capital so you're you're almost softening your landing in a way right would you rather run into the ground in a, in a straight vector, or would you want to have about 10 different vectors or lines that you kind of break up into little pieces maybe, and you land soft in some areas and land hard into others. And I think that, that is a great strategy to save yourself, you know, from hitting the ground too hard. And guess what? You know what the cool thing is? You actually get the credit for betting big. You still get that. And you have all these other things that, so diversification is huge when you're talking about betting big right now, do I have an exact parallel to this movie? Not really drew. Sorry. But, um, you know, if he had like three other smaller spawn off heists, you know, uh, that would be like an example, but that, that doesn't exist in this particular movie, but you get what I'm saying though, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you have to figure out how to, I love that analogy right, that you were saying, you come up with, you know, you have multiple lines that, are, that you're able to diffuse the energy uh, through so that you don't hit the ground so hard or so that maybe you can actually like level yourself back out and stop yourself from hitting the ground. And that that's huge, right? And you, you I think that that you really hit on a good point there, is what happens when you, you know, maybe you're new at a company, and you don't have a lot of political capital, you're, you're early in your career. How do you build up that political capital? Well, I think Derek and I, we're both big fans of this concept of like next gen leaders, right? These leaders that have both technical skills and soft skills. And that's one of the things that spurred us to create this wonder tour and to go on this together, is that we want to develop ourselves into better leaders like that and help, hopefully help influence others to go in that direction. If you're that type of a leader, one of the best ways in my experience, in my career, to be able to get back political capital is lean into that maker space, lean into that tech space. That's where I, you know, I can always go back to to keep building out those, those network connections, right? I can analyze data for days so I can solve somebody's problem very quickly, faster than they can, and I can build up capital and, and it's not that you do it, again, don't do this for yourself. You build up capital so that you can continue to push the initiatives forward, right? The things that need funding, the things that are going to help us achieve our strategic roadmap.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would just, my final thought on that would be that <clears throat> capital is built up on both sides, which is really cool, right? So if when you're working with somebody, you build up capital for them that they can spend, and they are building up capital that you can spend with them. So, just keep in mind that it's created at roughly the same rate. And I know that, you know, humans are humans. Like sometimes that they think, you know, if someone writes 10 lines of code and the other person writes three lines of code, that somehow they're roughly three times better or they have three times more capital. I challenge you to not think like that. I personally try to think in terms of how big of a risk did this person take? And if I got them to take a big risk, not not, not a risk like they risked their life or something like that. I'm saying like, How do they risk themselves and their norms? How have they risked uh, the the image of themselves, right? If they have risked that image hugely, then they have a lot of capability to go. And that means that I'm going to throw a lot more capital their way. I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to give you a bigger fish to land next time because you, you, my friend, have a lot of possibilities, right? Um, and everybody has like a huge amount of possibility. Uh, we're very growth mindset here on wonder tour, right? We don't, we don't think with a fixed mindset, thinking for the fixed mindset is not for us. Um, because we, we got, we're, we're on a journey. I mean, that's a tour is a journey journey is a tour. I mean, it's all, you know, we're, we're kind of taking whatever road to get there. Um, uh, it's filled with growth.
1: And, uh, so anyway, just a few other final thoughts there. Yeah, you really nailed it. The only thing I have to add to it is, uh, I don't know how we haven't talked about it up to this point about this movie, but have fun. That's clearly like they're doing this thing and they're taking big risks and stuff like that, but they're still having fun along the way. And you can look at the Mormon brothers and stuff like that if you want to, to, to see you know how to have fun. But I, I always find that that's like my number one rule when we do anything basically is it doesn't matter if it's work. We got to have fun. We got to find a way to make it fun. And if you if you're a leader um, you, you want to find a way to make it fun for you for sure. And for your team. Yeah.
0: Well, I I can give you an example from their particular situation. You know, that, that's something, thank you for bringing that up again. Uh, you know, when they were so funny to me, but when they're in there arguing about the balloons, right. You know, he picked a cowboy hat to wear. He didn't have to pick a cowboy hat. He could have picked something else, you know, back to Rusty's advice. Don't get too extreme, but, you can add your own personal flair on some particular situation and that can be fun for you. That could be your fun part, right? Um, you know, if you're into like putting, I don't know, say Easter eggs in your code, but sometimes I write funny comments in my code. Um, comments that make me laugh later. They may not make anybody else laugh, but for me, I'm like, you know, I, you know, this, this piece of code is driving me crazy. You know, I may say something about it, whatever. Uh, although I tend to wonder like, should I put this, you know, whatever, should I write this code, you know, write that comment in there, you know, cause I'm like, what if somebody else reads
1: that? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but you gotta have fun with it, right? That's, you gotta you know, have I was, fun with it. Yeah. I was so we have good, good, clean good, clean fun. Good, clean fun with it. <laughs> we're doing this, we're doing this data quality project. Basically we're cleaning up some really bad data. And I was like, you know what, like, I, you just got to think about it like you're a detective. You got to go in really deep here and you just got to think about like you're you're uncovering it. You're figuring out, you know, subsets and classifications of different bad data sets and stuff. And you're just trying to get to the bottom of, you know, solving this mystery. And it, it was funny. It, just, it really brought people's spirits up talking about it like that because you yeah. can really get down on on a deep, deep analytical investigation like that. You know, add a story to it. Make it fun. So without further ado, we're going to have to close this one off. Uh, this This has been a lot of fun. We're going on this Wonder Tour together, and we look forward to seeing you all again next week.
0: Thanks. We'll see you next time.